What brand of blanket do you have at home? If you're like most people, you have no idea. If you're Wiley Robinson, then you're out to change that. Wiley is founder and CEO of Rumple, the brand of blanket that most people will want when they see it. It all started when he was stranded in blizzard conditions in a vehicle that wouldn't start, and of course out of cell phone range. He was inspired to create blankets out of the same high performance material used in sleeping bags and puffy jackets. The resulting product ultimately became Rumple and is now sold in outdoor retailers and online. His brand became so sought after that the crowd at Shark Tank spent four years pursuing him to be on the show, which he did. In this episode of What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw, Wiley shares how his architecture education led him into a role as a designer and eventually to create Rumple. He shares advice for inspiring entrepreneurs and of course talks about appearing on Shark Tank and why he turned down a deal. Wiley Robinson, welcome to What I Wish I Knew. So why don't you start by sharing your story? So I guess my, sto- my story as it relates to Rumpel uh, would probably start uh, kind of around college age. Um, I went to the University of Colorado at Boulder. Um, the reason why I picked that school was there was a huge outdoor scene there. Um, and we can talk about sort of my, my background in, in outdoor sports and the outdoor industry. Uh, also a very strong architecture program. Um, and I was really uh, passionate at that time about becoming an architect. All through high school, I had, I had been, you know, really into art, um, just painting, drawing, sculpture, pretty much all mediums of art. Um, and I wanted to uh, bring that interest into sort of a more formal space. And I thought that architecture was like a good marriage of, of tangible sort of business skills with, with my love for creativity. So I studied architecture in college. Um, and, and by my senior year, I ended up getting an internship at a really large architecture firm called Gensler. Uh, it's like one of the largest architecture firms in the world. And I, I immediately realized that professional architecture is, is very technical, very serious. And uh, during my entire summer in that internship, I designed like a little window louver detail for this building that they were working on. So it was like a very, very small piece of this much larger project. And it was a three month design project for me. Um, and, and I quickly realized that, you know, I was, I was more interested in kind of like the, the theoretical side of architecture, the academic side of architecture, where you didn't have to be as serious as mathematical and as technical. And so it was kind of like this, you know, really sort of like lost moment in my life where I realized maybe I'd been spending four years studying this topic that wasn't really for me because it ended up being so serious and so technical. So I took my love for, for design, creativity, and also all the skills I had learned in architecture school and got a job as an architectural illustrator uh, at an agency called Communication Arts in Boulder right after I graduated. And what Communication Arts would do, among other things, is we would take incomplete uh, uh, retail projects, usually like really large, you know, 100,000 square foot lifestyle retail centers. Um, and we would do architectural renderings showing the mature project with mature trees, shoppers, you know, walking around, bustling activity. And those, those assets we created would be used to sell uh, potential tenants anchor spaces. So if they were building a really large building, you know, they'd, they'd like to get some, some major tenants locked in before the project is complete to sort of help offset some of the construction costs. And, um, and that really like informed me about the power of using creativity for storytelling, right? Like this, these projects were, were vapor at this point. They were, they were dirt lots in the middle of nowhere. And through this, these renderings, these assets we created, we, we were able to convince people that this was this really beautiful, vibrant heart of a, of a place. And um, that kind of like flipped a light in my head and said, okay, creativity can, can be used to tell stories. And so from there, uh, I, I really got focused on branding, identity, you know, really just all aspects of storytelling from a creative lens. And so um, I, I parlayed my job from communication arts into a job with Landor Associates in San Francisco. Um, and Landor is, is one of the larger branding agencies in the world. Um, and I was on the environments team because of my background in architecture. I did a lot of the 3D modeling and trade show booth design, uh, retail space design, but, but the agency did all sorts of branding. Um, so strategy, identity, graphics, advertising, PR, uh, writing and naming. I mean, it's just like a full service agency. So I was able to see all of those different departments working collaboratively to tell stories about our clients. And that's really where I sort of like parlayed that I just observed a lot of these, these peers of mine in the agency. And I, I parlayed a lot of what I saw into the founding of Rumpel. And one thing that I think has, has made Rumpel successful is we really locked in a strong brand story right from the beginning. We have a you know, hundred page brand book that was created in like year one 
of the company when we were a very immature company, you know, less than a million in revenue. But we have this like really robust brand book that sort of like tells our potential partners, people we're recruiting, investors, et cetera, what we're trying to do and what the big vision is. And it's going back to the renderings I was doing at Communication Arts. It's really like painting this vibrant picture of this mature brand before it existed. So that's so kind of like high level how it came to be. <laughs> yeah. And so while you're just building on that, did you envision that you were headed in this direction as far as creating something even when you were at Landor or is that that sense of learning that you picked up there was that just kind of something you were doing naturally along the way without knowing it I think I was exposed and interested in entrepreneurialism just purely growing up in San Francisco I grew up in San Francisco and then I went to Colorado for for college but when I moved back to to work at Landor it was just like there's so many entrepreneurs in the Bay Area. You're just seeing new companies get formed all the time. It was like my friends were starting them, peers were, you know, this was like newsworthy stuff that happens in that area. And so I think that um, I didn't really know what it was or I didn't know what, what being an entrepreneur meant, but it was just so, it was, it was so all over the place that uh, you couldn't help but sort of be attracted to that. And whether or not I knew what I was doing when I, when I started Rumpel and knew what I was getting into, um, I certainly didn't. But I definitely uh, was able to sort of pick up on the energy from, from where I was living and apply some of that motivation and, and work ethic that I saw all around me. And Wani, I mean, just to go back, because you spent many years, as, as you said earlier, in terms of the, the process of the academia yeah, of, of um, architecture. And you talk, I think, um, uh, earlier about your, your course in the environmental piece, too. So very specific and, and, and specialized. And I guess you hooked yourself on, onto that. You said, this is what I want to do. What, how did though, related to the kind of current position, which we'll come back to in a minute, but, but along that journey, were you un, unhappy or were you just guided and, and zigzagging and, and going to the next best thing? Was there something in, inside you that was bubbling? What, what's the story there? No. Uh... Great question. Um, I, I was never unhappy. In fact, I, I loved my entire academic career. Um, I, I would not trade my experience in the environmental design college at the University of Colorado for a Harvard degree. Um, it was a perfect career for me. And the reason why is because, as I mentioned, I was always a, an artist in, in high school and leading up to college. And I, I find that art is like a very, um, you know, subjective practice. Um, you kind of either like it or you don't, and and uh, and it's sort of in the eyes of the beholder. Whereas architecture marries this like real tangible, objective value. You know, like thousands of people can walk through a building and objectively say this building functions well. And I really like the idea of marrying like some tangible, uh, you know, reason to the creative work I was doing. So um, um, for me, that was that was a path in environmental design. And what I realized um, by the time I got to my senior year is is the practice gradually got more and more and more serious and more technical. And it would have continued to do so, you know, had I gotten a master's degree and, and you know, actually taken the bar for architecture, it would have become much more technical, much more serious, lots of engineering. I mean, I still had to take, you know, calculus and systems and all these classes through college, but I was still designing very hypothetical projects mm. in my studios. Mm. Um, and then that stuff was really fun to me. You know, I didn't yeah. have to like really get into the guts of a wall and, layer in the insulation and the mechanicals and all that stuff that you have to do in the real world. So the, 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 the theoretical sort of spatial design exercise that I was doing a lot of in the, in the early stages of the academic career gradually got much, much, much more serious with each passing year. And by the time I got to that internship at, at uh, Gensler, it was like, I'm designing a, a strip of window that's, you know, 24 inches wide and one inch thick. And it was like, oh my God, this is this is very, very precise, very technical. It just, it kind of narrowed and narrowed and narrowed. And I think that it would continue to have done so had I, had I continued in that path. So really, if, if you've got a jar full of creativity and, and if you like the analytical or the scientific side, you, you were kind of evens at college. And then sounds like you kind of waded back down on the, on the technical and said, hey, I, I want to create something. Albeit, I'm sure there's an efficacy that we'll talk about later. That's right. Yeah, I mean, going into college, it was it was sort of way more quantum field of opportunity. Like, you know, really, as an artist, you can you can kind of do whatever you want. And gradually, with the layering in of, of the architecture practice, it became much, much, much more technical. 
mm. to the point where I realized, oh, I may have kind of like knee jerked into something that's too technical here. Mm. Um, and, and then sort of opened up the aperture again with more branding and, and um, just more storytelling through using creativity. Yeah, that's yeah, fascinating. So it sounds like what, you, what you've really done is you've, you've grabbed, you know, taken advantage of all the learnings you could have along the way and, and then applied it. So, so tell us what was the impetus for, for Rumpel and how did you then pull all of that learning together and turn it into a business? Yeah, so the founding story for creating the product, um, and this kind of touches back on my, my background in, in outdoor and outdoor sports. I was on a, a surf and ski trip with a good friend of mine in Southern California. We had planned to use our holiday break. We were both working at design agencies. Um, we had planned to use our holiday break to, to drive down the coast of California. We were gonna surf all along the way down there. And then by the time we got to San Diego, we were gonna head east into the mountains. We brought all of our ski gear and we were gonna ski mammoth on the, and sort of surrounding areas on the way back up to San Francisco. And so the first part of the trip was fantastic. We got great surf all the way down the coast headed east um, and we were camping just outside Bishop um, and it ended up being like the, the coldest night ever on record um, in Bishop and uh, we, we were sleeping in our car and we woke up the next morning car was completely frozen uh, would not turn over and you know we were way out of cell phone reception no way we could walk into town like in a pretty remote area um, and we pretty much had to just wait for somebody to show up. Um, and this was like a fairly precarious situation. I mean, like we had no reason to believe anybody would show up to where we were camping. And what ended up happening is a guy came that wanted to like fly his drone in this area because it was a rare sort of like snow capped scene for that area that, that didn't often get snow. So he wanted to fly a drone and take some photography up there. But he, he is the one that actually ended up finding us and, and getting us help. Um, but that was like, you know, three, four, five hours after we sort of realized that we were in this situation. And during the time we were waiting, we just bundled up in our sleeping bags to stay warm and gradually started talking about the fact that we really enjoyed the materials in our sleeping bags much more than our blankets on our beds back home. And we, we sort of asked ourselves, like, why, you know, why hasn't somebody made a sleeping bag blanket? These materials were great. The materials on my big heavy duvet cover actually don't work that well. You know, like you have to wash them very regularly. Uh, they don't actually regulate temperature nearly as well as this. Uh, they're super bulky and hard to store when the season changes and things like that. So we decided to make a sleeping bag blanket when we got back home. Um, we each made one and that was, that was really kind of like the end of it. Um, we made these prototypes for ourselves and used them for a bunch of months. And gradually both of us started taking them from on our beds out to the park or out to, you know, a concert or something that just in and, in and around the city of San Francisco, as we would go to various events and things that were outside. And a number of our friends saw the product and thought it was pretty cool and said, hey, you guys should you guys should make a business with this. Um, and we were still like really unsure if this was something that was viable or if it was just our friends kind of, you know, blowing smoke. Um, but that's when we decided to Kickstarter, fairly low risk. We didn't have to invest a lot of money in creating a video and a couple prototypes. Um, and at the time, Kickstarter was like a really novel platform on which to start a company as well. You know, like there were Kickstarters that were getting major national press uh, because they had raised so much money and it was kind of like this, this, uh, you know, new, new platform to start businesses on. And so we said, Hey, let's give it a go. And we started, we did a Kickstarter and it ended up being about a quarter million dollars of pre-sales in the first 30 days. And that really told us like, okay, this is, this is an idea. Um, this is, a, this is a cool thing that we've created here, but it really wasn't until in the middle of Kickstarter that we took a step back and realized, okay, is this a singular product we've created that's just a, a sleeping bag blanket? Or is there a platform on which we can take some of the thinking that we've used for this product and apply it to other pieces of this category or, or future categories or whatever? And um, that's really when we, we realized that blankets as a category have really undergone very little innovation or change over the last several thousand years. Um, blankets are in fact, you know, we've done a bunch of research at this point, but blankets are in fact some of the oldest textiles ever created, like some of the first textiles ever discovered are blankets. And um, really like almost no material innovation has taken place in the category. But meanwhile, we've seen this amazing revolution happen in athletic equipment and sportswear and you know the full like athleisure category that's emerged in the last 20 years. What, what that's telling us is that people are comfortable and, and appreciate the performance qualities of a lot of these materials and really none of that technology has flown through into this blanket category, despite it being like the best use case I could possibly think of for the, these materials. 
So that's really like our thesis with Rumpel is we want to take some of the materials that we find in door gear and athletic equipment, performance fabrics, and apply them to this fairly dated category. Um, that's sort of like one way that we're looking to elevate the category. The second piece of it, um, which is a little less on the nose, that first piece is, is very tangible. We talk about that very frequently outwardly facing in our marketing. But the second piece of it is, is a little more nuanced and it's really around creating emotional connection with the product category. So as you use a blanket, you're wrapping up to, in it to feel warm and comfortable and cozy and safe and all these things. But despite that you know, highly emotive experience you have with the product, very, very few people can name a single household brand name of blanket. Um, it's, it's something that I often ask people, I ask them to think of how many blankets they have in their house. They'll count them up and they'll say, well, man, I probably have 20 blankets in my house. And then my follow-up question is always, okay, name one brand of blanket. And I very seldom can get a, a solid answer. You know, I'm, I live in the Northwest, so we get Pendleton and, and uh, Woolrich and stuff like that a handful of times. But those are 150 year old companies that, that, uh, you know, make, make products with fairly dated, you know, basic materials. Yeah. And so there's really no like Ikea of blankets. There's no, there's no brand that's really kind of owning that category um, in the same way that, you know, Yeti kind of reinvented the, the standard cooler or Stance, ha, Stance or Bombas have done like some amazing things with this ubiquitous category of socks. Um, and so we're really trying to elevate the brand as being like this brand that owns the category of blankets, not just outdoor technical blankets, but we look to expand into, you know, other categories of blanket that you might use on the couch or on your bed or all sorts of areas uh, in your daily life. And the way that we build those brand connections is through a lot of the artist partnerships and brand collaborations we do. Additionally, a lot of our responsible business activities, like we're a certified benefit corporation, 1% for the planet member, we offset our entire carbon footprint every year. So it's doing things like that that builds emotional connections with customers so that when they're wrapped yeah. up in the, in the purple, they not only love the feeling of the product from the material standpoint, but they also have this emotional connection. This blanket says something about me. It stands for these things. And so I'm connecting with it in this way. Finally, I mean, it's a beautiful story and it's, it's all sounds really perfect. And this, this podcast is what I wish I knew here. Yeah? So I'm guessing from <laughs> people telling you over a cool beer, hey, that's a great product. You should do something about it too. We immediately got sales and the whole thing jumped off the floor and into consumers' hands. So let's just rewind a little bit. And, you know, the, what I wish I knew, just, just share some of the, you know, the chasms, the holes, the, the, the trip-ups that you had or may have had along the way. Just um, if you can elaborate on those, because they must be reflections for you and significant learning. Yeah, I mean, and there are many. Um, you know, I definitely do not want to present the illusion that we did this Kickstarter and we're off to the races and have just been killing it every year since. Um, there have been a lot of challenges we've, we've had to overcome and some that we haven't overcome, frankly. Um, I mean, starting from the beginning, you know, my, my co-founder and I, within about two years of, of forming the business, realized that, like, we might not be the best business partners. Um, and uh, we were good friends before starting the business and, and, um, and really, like, didn't complement each other's skill sets very well. And so that partnership was dissolved about two years in um, and, and my co-founder is no longer involved with the business. Um, so that was like one major challenge. I mean, that I could get into that, but uh, that was definitely something that, that uh, we had to overcome and get through and, you know, still run the business while we sort of sorted that out. Um, there's a lot that goes into that, obviously, that, you know, he was a 50-50 owner with me in the company. So um, figuring out ways to sort of dilute his ownership in the company and give him the, the payout he, he deserved and um, work, work with our other shareholders around how to do that. Um, that was a big challenge. Uh, more recently, we, when we transitioned all of our product over to post-consumer recycled content in 2019, we realized that a lot of the, the 1.0 product, the non-post-consumer recycled, the virgin content product, um, was going to be heavily discounted at all of our retail partners. You know, they, they sort of viewed that product as obsolete once we came out with the new recycled version of our product, which is essentially the exact same product. It's just now made with recycled material. And so that caused a huge issue with the marketplace being flooded with off-price product that really the consumer couldn't distinguish between. Um, a lot of challenge educating the customer about what was new and what was old, why new was better, um, all this stuff. So that was that was one of the more recent challenges that we faced 
that we frankly did not really get through in a, in a very good way. Um, we had a very tough year in 2019 from a growth standpoint relative to other years. Um, had to, you know, haircut the team quite a bit at the end of 2019 and really kind of like shore up at the beginning of 2020. Um, that ended up being a good thing because as, as we all know, the pandemic started at the beginning of 2020. And so we were kind of already tightened up. So when I hear about stories about what people had to do at the start of the pandemic, the cost measures they had to take in, into action, we had done a lot of those already. So we were sort of prepared, um, you know, for that big event. I mean, there's just been, there's been tons of learnings, tons of fumbles, tons of, you know, sort of sputters before we actually kind of took off uh, as a brand. And I still and think we're, we're yeah. a lot of mark. <laughs> and just in terms of that, then you talked about the essence of the brand. And again, we'll, we'll, we'll deep dive that later. Is it, is there a, a sense that it's, is it all here in, in the U S is it, is it, you know, everything's done there. Do you, look for sustainable solutions around the world what how do you you know how do you get how do you get the product yeah from a manufacturing standpoint we outsource all of our manufacturing to a trading partner uh, it's a us-based company but they work with supply chains all over the world yeah so they build various supply chains based on the needs of our products and they work yeah. with all the so houses and mills and factories right now our main supply chain is just outside hangzhou in southern china Mm -hmm. That's sort of like the, the epicenter of technical fabrics. They have the most capacity in terms of, we need to use a really large machine called a robo quilter. It's basically a CNC stitching head that comes down on a 3D, three-dimensional bed and, and can stitch sort of like a lathe, but for sewing. Um, and so we need to use a product like, or a machine like that to get our sort of swooping stitch lines that run continuously from one side to the next. Um, so that's a very specialized machine and, and the capacity of those machines, the quantity of those machines uh, is best in Southern China. So that's where we've elected to pick that supply chain. But there's other products that we make that, you know, we're, we're always experimenting with new, new ways to make them more cost effective ways, higher quality. Um, the thing that, that we have to keep intact for all of the, the different supply chains we look at is uh, we're a certified benefit corporation. We also offset our carbon, as I mentioned. So we need to take into consideration how far goods are being transported because we're going to offset all that carbon. Um, we need to, we need to pay attention to workers' rights, workers' hours, cleanliness of the facilities. So all of the, and additionally, I should mention, we are now starting to really go down this aggressive path of, of sustainability certification. So when we use natural products like down, we're, we're making sure that everything is RDS certified. You have to make sure that each chain of command of those goods is certified. So, it's, it takes a lot of work to switch up those, those supply chains. Um, but in all cases, we're making sure that they adhere to our pretty strict standards of sustainability and ethics. So widely on that note then, I mean, you, what you've just talked about are things that make a lot of sense to a lot of people, but they also introduce complexity. And whether it's, you know, getting certified B or the sustainability measures, or even doing, you know, artist collaborations as y'all do a lot of, um, how have you decided that that all of that work is worth it? <laughs> Good question. Um, well, I think that um, their collaborations, for instance, if we're just talking about that, those, those can have different objectives. They don't all have the same objective. Um, generally speaking, when we are talking about working with an external partner for a consumer facing thing, like a collaboration, um, it kind of needs to tick at least one of four boxes. Um, and the first two that I'll mention here are, are most important. Number one, the, the art and product that we end up creating needs to look good. Um, people, people buy products because they look good. They wanna be seen using them. Um, so if we're presented with a brand or an artist that has a style or aesthetic that just won't look good on our product, that's probably a deal breaker right there. Um, so that's sort of first and foremost, that has to happen. Next, we really want to make sure that whoever we work with, whether it's a brand or an individual, accelerates a business priority. Um, we have a number of business priorities, but like one, one, for example, is representation of BIPOC artists. So we want to make sure that we're representing BIPOC artists um, fairly and accurately. And, and uh, so if, if an artist comes to us and their art looks great, and they also happen to be, you know, for instance, like an indigenous artist. Um, that does sort of like indigenous designs, that, that sort of ticks two of those boxes. Those are really the first two most important, accelerating brand priority and looks good. 
Um, additionally, there are two other categories that can happen, assuming at least one of those two first boxes is ticked. Um, and the first is it needs to expand the reach of the brand. So, you know, we might work with like a home decor company, for instance, if we're starting to see more pickup of our products with home customers or patio shoppers, things like that. So, you know, I, we're not doing this, but like collaborating with Martha Stewart Living or something like that is something we would not, we would not throw out the window because it could accelerate the opportunity for new customers to be exposed to the brand. Um, and then the fourth thing is just like, if there's sort of a cool factor with somebody we're working with, if they have something special about them that people are gravitating to and, and paying attention to, um, that's always something that we talk about as well. So long-winded answer here, but as long as a partnership checks a couple of those boxes, uh, we sort of view it as successful. We definitely don't look at things exclusively in terms of revenue or volume. In fact, some of the collaborations we do are very limited volume and really don't drive a lot of revenue when you factor in all the artist commissions and all that stuff. It's really just about doing something cool from a brand standpoint. I would categorize everything that we're doing here on the collaboration side as helping build brand and really continuing to sort of establish that emotional connection that I talked about a minute ago with the product and the use case of having this emotive blanket wrapped around you. And wouldn't you say, though, just, you know, given what's happened in, in recent years that that probably your target consumers are looking for that? They're looking for brands that are making a difference in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think I think in general, people just are more attracted to brands that they connect with now than than they have been in the past. You know, I think that I mean, this goes like across all types of products. I mean, my, my wife just bought some cleaning products for our house and she really loves the brand and the founder that, you know, they, they stand for sustainability and natural ingredients and things like that. And it's like, I would have never thought that my wife would be having a, a emotional relationship with a brand of household cleaning products. You know, um, that's just something that's like fairly new, I would say in the last couple of decades, but um, it extends to, to all types of products and, um, if the thing that you care most about is, as you mentioned, sort of responsibility and, and doing good, um, then Rumple is probably a, a brand that you might connect with in that way. So Wiley, it, it, it is fascinating because you've actually connected and, you know, Mike and I, and you are working with brands and you know the emotional um, uh, Velcro that you have to attach to it yet. And You've got actually a, a human emotional attachment here, haven't you? In, in, in terms of the personality that's doing the design, in terms of the, the development, like you said, the, uh, uh, the accelerator, et cetera. So how do you square that up with, I guess, the pace of, of change, pace of design, the, the audience that you have this time next year, maybe you know, I don't know, is it the same uh, loyalty? Do, do they flip on, on the basis of passion and fad? I mean, share, share a bit about how you how you juggle that piece because you've got a strong sense here, a really strong sense of a, a direction in which I applaud, but I'm I'm kind of throwing in the bombs here and saying, how do you how do you mix that all up? Yeah, it's it's really tough to to forecast ahead like that, <laughs> like you're talking about, um, like what's gonna resonate with your customers especially because Rumpel is an omni-channel business. So we're sold at, at retail. We're, we're distributed internationally, which is actually a calendar that's even ahead of, you know, U.S. wholesale. Um, and so, I mean, we just had our spring 22 sales meeting two weeks ago. So we're, we're actively selling in spring 22 right now, which means that we had to conceive of the season. We had to design the season, get approvals, you know, samples, strike-offs, uh, sales sample sets, all that stuff delivered before June of 21. Wow. And so we're talking about spring 22, you know, in, in November, December, January, the year before. Um, yeah. And it's really hard to forecast what is going to be cool or trending at that time. I do think that, that Rumpel is not, I would not consider Rumpel a, an apparel brand um, in the mm -hmm. sense that there's no like fit or gender to our products. I think yeah. it's sort of this hybrid category that's, that's functional gear and also has an element of fashion in it too. You know, like you, you would select the print of Rumpel that matched your couch, for instance, if you're using this on an outdoor seating setup or something. Um, so it, I think that what, to answer your question, what goes into this is like, we ask ourselves, what's gonna be timeless? Who do we see as kind of like on-ramping to, to, you know, major 
recognition um, from a from an individual standpoint, from an artist standpoint? Do they have room to grow? Is their audience kind of tapped out? Is it growing? Um, do we want to align with them? Do we align with their values? Uh, typically, if if uh, somebody's got pretty overt values that they talk about publicly to their audiences, those probably won't change in a year or two. Hopefully, they won't. Um, and so we can hopefully align with some of those those brand qualities of the individuals with the Rumpel brand. And that still stays intact 12, 18 months after we conceive of the concept. And on that note then, Wiley, how do you decide who you're aiming for? I mean, cause you know, you were on, you know, a surf ski trip when this, this need kind of came up and you can imagine that, you know, there are people in that age range or in that, you know, that have those interests. Is that always your target audience or, I mean, cause your product can be relevant to, to everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that, that's been an evolving target, honestly. Um, in the early days, we really were just kind of marketing to ourselves. So I would say largely, you know, 25 to 35 year old, I wouldn't say men specifically, but I would say like gearhead type people, mm-hmm. um, you know, people that, that uh, wear technical jackets to go grocery shopping, you know, a puffer jacket to go grocery shopping. They kind of like get and understand the technical fabrics and how well they work. That's somebody that would immediately kind of get what we were doing from the blanket standpoint. Um, but since since then, you know, the business has evolved quite a bit. Um, majority of our customers are now female. Um, you know, I think that uh, we've we've leaned more heavily into just the comfort and coziness of the product and less into the sort of technical functionality of the product. And that could have something to do with the shift and who our consumers are. Um, but really, we're we're. We're thinking about our customer. We're also thinking about just putting the brand at the center of a lot of decisions. You know, would the Rumpel brand do X? And if the answer is yes, we would pursue it. If the answer is no, kind of like just, you know, put it to the side. Um, and that's that's been a big challenge the whole time. I mean, to the point you make, we can sell this product to everyone. You can literally buy the same blue Rumpel for an eight-year-old as you could, an eight-year-old guy as you could for a 65-year-old woman. And so um, there's no fit, no gender, as I mentioned. So it's, it's, it is very difficult to segment customers in that way. It's more about standing for values and whomever latches on to those values, whether they're 10 years old or 60 years old, man, woman, whatever. Um, that's, that's really the connection we're making with the customer more so than the specific functionality that meets them where they need function. It's, you know, it's a fascinating marketing challenge because, you know, for so many, you know, so often when you think about categories and, and businesses, you'd come at this and you'd say, okay, look at, look at a category. Who are the primary users of that category? What are their, you know, personas of those type of users? And you kind of build out that way. And you could come at it in another way and say, which categories lack innovation? And, you know, if you'd had this vision in the very beginning that, you know, blankets are boring and we're going to do something that's, that's unique, but it's almost it's so interesting and organic the way that you've developed your business because it was a it was a need that you had yourself. You solved that need by designing something yourself. You used what you designed, and then you kind of grew from there. But you now you have something that, like you said, it could be a you know, parents with a six year old kid, or it could be sixty year old retirees that like to go to the beach and you know want to cover up now and then, or even it could be people that you know want to blank a throw blanket around the house, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I, I think that uh, one, of the, one of the key things for us early on was really just marketing to ourselves. You know, like we knew that customer very well. Um, and I think that, that that came out of just being naive. Neither of us had started companies before. Neither of us really went through the diligence of like targeting a specific customer and building messaging and product, product around that, that profile. We really were just like, do we think this is cool? Would we use this? Okay, let's move forward with it. Um, and I, I, I think it would be very difficult to start a company where you just didn't know your target customer. Um, and I think that you can learn about your target customer in a fairly short amount of time, but it's just so much easier and so much more instinctual if you, if you know that person deeply and you're sort of marketing to yourself. Um, so when, when I talk to, you know, new entrepreneurs, new founders, um, I really encourage them to first do things that they think are right for the brand um, that they think people like them would like. And uh, once you kind of nail that, then you can start expanding your customer base a little bit. So Wiley, on a, you know, you talk about targeting and, and segmentation and in the, in the best purest marketing world, it's about similar behaviors. As I'm sure, you know, it's not just about 
they're all 24 and traveling. So yeah. Yeah. is that a context you, you have in your mind too, that look, it's, it's, it's the behavior type that, that you're after. And I guess the nuance here is that if it, if it, for part of your range or where it started, if it, you know, if you need a traveler or, or you're doing outdoor stuff, perhaps that's the, the kind of key driver. Is that, is that how you funneled it originally or, 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 or did you look at it just by age? Et no, no, it, it's, it's absolutely what you said. It's the sociographic bucket that we're looking at here. So we view this as just outdoorsy people. I mentioned, I, I sort of half jokingly mentioned the, the person that wears a puffy jacket to go grocery shopping, but that really is who we're talking about here. It's somebody that sort of fancies themselves outdoors, outdoorsy. Um, they wear products that look technical, um, you know, as clothing. Uh, and they, they kind of get and appreciate the materials um, that we're using before they even touch them. So this, again, this can be a wide variety of ages, um, you know, it's really a sociographic bucket we're talking about here. Outdoorsy yeah. folks, I guess is how I would describe yeah, yeah. it. So Wiley, what do you wish you knew when you started? Um, I wish I had a clearer, well, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff, but I think first and foremost, I wish that I had a clearer channel strategy when I started the company. We, we messed around with trying to do wholesale and international and you know, discount websites and all that stuff for years, honestly, before we kind of shored up our channel strategy and what our intent was with each channel. I think I would have preferred to go into it and saying, uh, okay, we're going to, just as an example, we're going to focus on our direct channel and five key retailers and that's it. And that's all we're going to do for three years. And we're going to make sure that those five retailers are super successful and our website is super successful. And then, and only then we're going to talk about expansion. I mean, we just, we, we caught ourselves up in so much logistical stuff working with, you know, not great retailers in the beginning or discount websites or just not having all that stuff tight going into the relationship. And it's just a lot of spinning your wheels and, and sort of figuring it out um, when it's a little too late. <laughs> yeah. Were you prepared to fail, Wiley? Uh, I say I was, but I probably wasn't. Um, I quit my job pretty early in this to focus on Rumble exclusively. It was actually before we started our Kickstarter. Um, I was like, we're doing this. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going all in. Um, my partner, you know, in hindsight was probably smarter about it. He didn't quit his job until six months after the, the campaign ended. Um, he was still, you know, earning an income from his, from his job. And, and I was just like, I'm going for it. I've got some money saved. Um, I think that, uh, that I, probably would tell people that it would, you know, we're trying this out and we'll see if it'll work, but I would have been crushed if it had failed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I don't doubt that. And I can sense the energy and, and, and passion right, right now uh, across the water. So, so from your, you know, uh, kind of conventional training in architecture and I get the design piece, cause I think that would certainly emanate here in terms of choice and, and, and hierarchy of uh, choice, et cetera. But what, what would you say you've taken, because you know there are a lot of architects out here right now, and and they may think, or, or in in non-associated disciplines, thinking, how do I do this? Do I do this? What what sort of skill sets would you take from what you did in in that discipline around that discipline that is, in one sense, not connected? But I'm sure you're about to tell me, well, hey, you know, there's this, there's that, and there's the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would just still go back to the the idea of creating narratives and storytelling. Um, even going back to my first architecture studio as a, as a freshman in college, you're standing up there, they bring in local architects from, from, at the time it was from Boulder, and they would critique your presentation and you're holding them a little cardboard model and you're saying, here's why you move in here and here's why you do it this way. And really what you're doing is you're trying to convince them of this experience that you think is happening. Um, I mean, in reality, you're holding up a, you know, popsicle stick model and it looks like nothing, but you're really trying to convince them through your presentation style, through your, your physical assets, your, your model, your renderings that are on the wall behind you and everything that like, this is what this, this project is doing. And, but it's all vapor. It's nothing. It's literally like, you know, a couple sheets of paper and a, and a model that you're holding in your hand there. So it's really about the presentation style, the ability to sort of persuade and sell your idea. I would say that's a skill that I, that I started developing pretty early in that architecture career that has parlayed into a number of things with Rumpel. 
um, obviously the creation of the brand, the formation of the brand and what the story is and the narrative we're trying to tell as a brand, but also recruiting our first employees and re recruiting our employees that we have now, you know, I still need to sell them, um, bringing in investment to the company. Um, certainly when we're in sales meetings with various retailers, you know, I, I mentioned before we started recording here that we've been in REI for five years now, like they, they brought us in when we were two employees. Um, we had no means being in a big retailer like that. We, we did not know really how to support retail in that way at all. And in the sales meeting, we were able to convince them that we were able to, and we would figure it out and, um, or just not let them know how small the team was. And so it's all kind of like this sales narrative that um, I think is really important in all aspects of starting a business and really in all aspects of probably any career. So speaking of kind of selling and that kind of thing, tell us the story about the sharks and, and why you walked away. Yeah, so the Shark Tank, I'll start actually a few years ago. Um, Shark Tank has actually approached Rumpel a handful of times to be on the show. Um, I was actually looking back through my email with the casting team and they, they wanted Rumpel to originally be on season eight and we just appeared on season 12. So this has like been sort of a four year long conversation with them. Um, and the, the previous years I've always thought, well, you know, this is kind of like cheesy a little bit. And I see a lot of businesses go on there and just get totally ripped to shreds. Um, and Rumble doesn't own a lot of IP, you know, like we own IP around our, our name, our logo, a couple of the technologies we've developed, but generally speaking, our, our product and our brand are like fairly subject to parody. So I saw in Shark Tank that like having the, you know, trademark in hand was like a big selling point for a lot of these, these people that were pitching. And we just like, didn't have a lot of that. So I was worried about going on there and getting totally ripped to shreds and, uh, and frankly, exposing the idea to people that could very quickly turn on a, a factory and create the exact same product. But four years of, of you know, sort of like touch checkpoints and, and check-ins with the team there. And finally, I was just like, all right, this is a cool opportunity for the brand. This is a cool opportunity for me to kind of stretch. I think I'm going to go for it. Additionally, we were really starting to make some traction with uh, this expansion into NFL and NCAA licensed product. Um, and we've raised a good amount of money for Rumpel at this point, um, but really all of that money is kind of earmarked for expansion in the outdoor channel and adjacent channels, you know, kind of outdoor lifestyle, surf, skate, snow. Um, that's what the team is built around. That's where the sort of marketing and communication uh, is pointed. And I, I, I was concerned about the expansion to sports licensing is like maybe needing additional capital to hire a separate team to help with that extension. Um, so I really went in there for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, obviously to have just this incredible personal experience being on TV on a reality TV show that, that uh, you know, <laughs> we can talk more about that personal experience, but that was something I was interested in going through. Um, two, the, the exposure, of course, that you get on the show is, is not something to, to shrug off. Um, I don't think it's wrong to go on the show to get exposure at all. Um, there's kind of like two camps there I've found, and, and I certainly side with the camp that says it's okay to do whatever you can as an entrepreneur to get exposure to your company. And then the third was to potentially gain some additional capital and, and strategic partnership to expand our, our brand into sports licensing. Um, so those are sort of the three reasons why I did it. Um, the, the experience when I went on there, um, if I'm kind of talking about those three things, uh, you know, the personal experience was incredible. We, we filmed the whole thing during COVID. So I had to quarantine in a hotel for two weeks before the filming. Um, the show is every bit as intense in real life as it looks on the show. I mean, like you're standing behind those double doors and they say three, two, one, go. They open up, you walk out, you hit a mark on the carpet in front of you. You do a pause for one minute where they capture a bunch of B-roll footage and that's you, you know, gulping and looking around and they sort of splice that into the, the episode. But then they say go and you just launch into your pitch and they do not stop until the deal is either made or, or done. Um, so that was intense. And I mean, they're just firing questions at you, uh, you know, right and left. I was in there for an hour and a half. They ended up editing it down to about eight minutes. Um, <laughs> and so I that experience was amazing. <laughs> and so why and there's like, you know, hot lights on you and cameras all over the place and it's nuts. So Wiley, did you meet um, any of them before or is it just you only meet? No. Them 
you well, you, you don't really even meet them. I mean, you go up there, they're, they're being quiet. They're sitting in their chairs and the, and the producer says, go, and you start your pitch and then they fire out questions and things, but it's not like we were standing around a, you know, buffet table or something before the taping. I mean, we were completely quarantined, no contact with anybody. So I didn't, I didn't meet any of them before or after. Wow. And just for me, and I'm on the other side of the pond, and we have a similar show here, uh, Dragon Center, as I'm sure you know. So what, mm-hmm. what, um, if, if fascinating is an hour and a half of, of rigor <laughs> and being put under the lights. I mean, what did, was the eight minutes, for example, a fair representation and or did they live up to their characters? I would say the representation was mostly fair. The, the piece that I think that I remember differently is, uh, so Mark Cuban went out fairly quickly. Um, he, he said later, this was not edited in, but he was really there to make deals in natural foods and a couple of other categories, but he wasn't super interested in, in physical products like Rumple. Um, however, he was actually really complimentary of the brand and the traction we had established, you know, profitable company, growing sales year over year, unique product, uh, interesting, sort of colorful, vibrant brand. So he was very complimentary of the brand and actually kind of like advocating for me to the other sharks that were trying to, you know, pound down my valuation. So that part I think was edited a little bit inaccurately, but everything else for the most part was pretty accurate. He went out quickly. Barbara went out quickly. Um, Mr. Wonderful was, was, you know, pretty dismissive of it until I offered a royalty opportunity. Uh, Blake Mykoski and Damon came in as with it, with an offer that later sort of whittled down to just Blake. Um, and then I, and then I rejected both of the offers. They just, the, the valuation on them wasn't, uh, wasn't high enough in my opinion. Um, but overall the, the edit was pretty accurate with the one exception of Cuban actually seeming more, uh, uh dismissive of it than he was in reality. And I guess like a public auction, if you say yes and they say yes, then, then the deal's done. It's, it's filmed. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there is a whole diligence process that takes place after the taping. And I have heard that, that deals can often, you know, the terms can change and things like that. So, but you do sort of verbally agree to make a deal. Fascinating. Good stuff. So Wiley, you know, two, two last questions. One of them is I spent a lot of time uh, mentoring, um, entrepreneurs and a big part of accelerator programs is you're, I'm sure you're aware is the the pitch deck and that kind of thing. Are there any, any pieces of advice that you can give to those stage of entrepreneurs that are fundraising or, or in that stage that, you know, any key elements of how you talk about your business. And I, I try to coach people along about, you know, how, how they tell their story and how they articulate that. But are there, is there any keys that you've learned in your kind of your journey with Rumple about, how to articulate a story to an audience like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of different pieces of advice I would give. I would say one easy one is don't ever make assumptions about grabbing X percent market share of this, you know, hundred billion dollar category. That's just ridiculous. Have a really realistic perspective on how big you can get in, in X amount of time. Um, you know, if you're, if you're doing a cosmetics company, don't, don't throw up some statistic about cosmetics being an $80 billion category and you're going to get half a percent of it. Like that's just, you don't know that. Um, so I always find that to be kind of a BS, BS assumption. Um, and, and I see that in a lot of like really early stage decks. Um, other ones would be, uh, I would, I would probably had I gone back and done this again, I would have probably put the team behind the brand a little bit more in front of the deck because really in those super early stages, it's just all about the team and the ability for them to work together and uh, bring their collective skill sets together in a way that's complementary. Um, and so if, if I'm ever looking through a deck like that and I see the team is, you know, four guys that are the exact same, that's usually sort of a, a bad recipe for, for, for my perspective. I mean, in, in my case, we, there was two guys that were the exact same, basically, and that was not a good recipe. Yeah, good stuff. So last question, Wiley. We, um, if the world had to listen to you for a few minutes about, you know, your entrepreneurial journey or, or, you know, what sort of advice, what would you share about what you've learned so far? I think it depends on the, um, the specific stage of growth, for sure. Um, you know, there's a really good Harvard Business Review article that I've referenced a bunch of times in, in talking to our team 
about stages of growth. It's called the five stages of business growth. And when you're in those first two, three stages, it's like the whole thing is about hustle. Uh, it's really not about smarts. Um, I mean, I knew nothing about starting a business the first two, three, four years, even I'm still learning a ton every single day, but those first few years, it was like, how much energy do you have? How willing are you to be on this every single day? And like, really kind of like engaging with this business, this idea with like your full self to the point where you integrate your vacations with it. You know, you're, you're, that's like what you're doing in your free time is attending events that benefit your idea or, I mean, literally working on it, spending just lots of hours working on it behind a computer screen often, oftentimes, or establishing partnerships, having dinner, drinks, whatever, you know, encounters with people that can help benefit your idea. It's like full immersion in the idea is kind of what the first couple of years look like, at least what they did for me. That's great. Wiley, really appreciate your, your time here. I and mean, the, the journey of Rumpel has been fascinating. And I love the fact that you had you know, you, you pulled together your, your experiences as a designer into this. And it was interesting to hear you talked about how in depth you saw the brand, even before you really had, you know, much of a business, right? So you had clarity of vision and you, but you also were kind of open to learning along the way. And, and maybe there's that, you know, tug of war a little bit between where you want to go and your, the need to really kind of stay the course with kind of the balance of being able to learn along the way. So that to me, was a real takeaway. So really appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. The, the establishing the vision is the part that felt most natural for me and learning the tactics to get to that outcome are, are what I'm learning every day, I would say. Yeah, thank you, Wally. And I, I sense, as I asked you earlier, this kind of glass of um, creativity and structure is something that is, you know, hard to grasp both. And I, I believe from what you've described in your experience, you, you have that and you kind of dish out elements of those two as you move along and, and really excited by the fact you brought you know um highest emotion <laughs> into a practical solution to deliver an unmet need uh, you know a, a need that that you know has been out there and 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 you've identified and and, and been successful so i wish you the very best of luck and, and uh, success in the future yeah as you grow it thank you so much i really appreciate that we do hope you enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dorr. Please join us at whatiwishinewshow.com. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please share What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dorr with your friends. We welcome your feedback and recommendations of new podcast guests and ideas on topics. If you have business challenges, we're also available for advisory and consulting roles. We'd be delighted to listen and help. Just send us an email. Our address is hello at whatiwishinewshow.com.